one of the great ironies of life is that success, the success that every one of us very much desires to experience, is often one of the worst things that can happen to us. As someone pointed out long ago that if you don't have failures and disappointments, you don't really learn anything. Uh, I remember when I was taking classes in, 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 in education, they taught us in how to, take a t to give a test, and they said if a student gets 100% of the test, it's a bad test, because the test is supposed to measure what a student doesn't know, not to be so easy that they can easily answer everything. And so the idea of learning, of education, is this stretching of ourselves intellectually, emotionally, philosophical, or whatever way you want, even athletically. Because adversity and, and the opposition that often comes with it is really the crucible in which character is crafted. And that's where, but oftentimes that success, um, that character development is compromised by compromise. It gets compromised by our willingness to compromise. It's kind of like going on a diet and deciding you're not going to eat any more sweets except for this last one that you're about to eat. And uh, <clears throat> that worked very well for me. Uh, I've continued to eat that last one on a regular basis. It's not that compromise is always bad, especially if you're trying to decide where you're going to eat or uh, if you're going to build a bridge and where you're going to put it. These kind of things need discussion and compromise. But when we're talking about things that are more foundational to who we are, we talk about what truth is, we talk about life and morality and justice... Compromise can be the very embodiment of evil, and we see it throughout human history when we try to understand what happened with the, with the Soviet Union before it was taken over by the Bolsheviks, or what happened in Germany when it was taken over by the fascists, the Nazis. How did these things happen? And historically, what we know in retrospect is that people who could have made a difference decided that rather than push back, they decided they would just kind of compromise. In both cases, the, those people were convinced that these sources of power wouldn't survive, that they would collapse on their own. And, and in fact, they did. <laughs> the Soviet Union collapsed right away. It only took 70 years and who knows how many hundreds of millions of lives. In the same way with, with the fascists. We, we know it took at least 12 years for that to play out and destroy itself at the cost of about 60 million lives. So the idea of compromise as being a way of avoiding the difficult moment we're in is one of those things that is a, really a deception in many ways because especially if we're asked to compromise things that we hold as foundational, as fundamental, as being absolutes, then we're really entering into a deal with the devil and that never works out well. And we see it happening all around us today. For example, this week in the news, just this week alone, I, I came across an article where it said that Pope Francis had entered into a compromise agreement with China. And, and basically, it, it, was, uh, uh, allow, it would allow the R Roman Catholic Church to avoid being outlawed as an illegal religion in China. All they had to do was give the Chinese government the right to pick bishops and priests and cardinals. And uh, of course, you know, uh, the, Pope Francis did explain, he says, you, it's, not, it's not really fair to say China isn't a democracy. <laughs> but you see, right now, the Chinese Communist Party is out, uh, aggressively persecuting, sanctioning, abducting, torturing, even arresting anybody who is a non-conforming with the Communist Party, and that includes any kind of really um, hardcore, true-believing Catholics who are not willing to go along with the Communist agenda. We also found this week that there are literally, well, 300 this week. There's been probably over several thousand churches in the United Methodist Church who um, have officially left the denomination um, and as the article went on to say that they did it over disagreements over the fact that clergy are performing marriages for and ordaining LGBTQ people as clergy in the church. And if that wasn't enough, then the bad news came that the Presbyterian Church of America will add a third gender option for non-binary non genderqueer people when it collects data about its members, an act of love and compassion. 
You know, you used to think that membership meant something exclusive, but the idea is when you expand it so that anybody who identifies any way they want, particularly in sexual ways, uh, can be a member, and we're saying that's an act of, of love and compassion, what it is really is nothing else but an act of cowardly compromise by a, a set of religious bureaucrats. What all these things have in common is a preference for compromise and accommodation over biblical teaching. I mean, uh, the Bible tells us, it informs us that in the end times we would see this kind of things. It, it's kind of stunning because I've read the passages for decades, and yet when I see them coming to pass before my very eyes, I've kind of really kind of uh, verklempt, you know. It's almost like watching an Arizona-Nevada election, you know. You just can't believe what you're actually seeing. Um, but Paul warned in Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 4, 1, he said there would be a departure, a falling away, an abandonment of the faith. And he said it would be a replacement of the Bible with doctrines of demons. And I don't know if there's any other way to categorize some of these teachings like CRT and, and the wokeism and LGBTQism and all the rest. They're just doctrines of demons. You can say that's not kind and it's not intended to be kind. It's not intended to be cruel. It's just a statement of fact. These are teachings that are really spawned in the deepest parts of the pits of hell and are promoted as being some kind of revealed or revolutionary way of looking at life. The question we often have is, how in the world did we ever get here? And believe it or not, we can kind of begin to look back just 172 years ago. In fact, it was in the year 1850 that an illustrious group of German theologians, they called them the Tübingen School, they invented what is known today as a school of higher criticism. These I say these men were theologians. I don't really believe they were Christians, but they were Christian theologians. And they referred to their view of things, their, really their school of study as being that of higher criticism uh, based upon their own heightened imagination and self-esteem as opposed to something that's called textual criticism. Textual criticism doesn't mean you get the Bible and you, you criticize it. What it means, it's a study to determine the veracity and the accuracy of translation. It's a really a, a kind of a, a great scholarly study. The reason we have <clears throat> so many very good translations of the Bible is because it's based upon the work of these men who spend their lifetime studying biblical texts and comparing them. There's, in the New Testament alone, there's some 25,000 different manuscripts or, or parts of manuscripts that have to be studied and compared to come up with what is the most accurate translation of the text. It's something that's very sophisticated, very helpful, and very important. But what the higher critics did is they didn't edit the text uh, basically, nor did they even try to change it. What they did was they embellished it with a humanistic point of view. In other words, they take the Bible and they look at it, they read it through the lens of what was called in the New Enlightenment humanism. And as the name might indicate, humanism is this view of life that man is the center of everything. So they would say that we want to look at life based upon its material, physical uh, aspects as opposed to thinking about the spiritual world. It's looking at things from a sensory perspective, not a spiritual perspective. It's about the here and now, not some amorous pie in the sky by and by. That basically they say that mankind is not a sinner, he's basically good, and it's only circumstances and bad parents that make them bad. It really was a summary, if you will, or summarized by Protagoras' theorem where he said, man is the measure of all things. And if you're not following really clearly, that's kind of juxtaposed to what the Bible teaches. The Bible says God, and as he's expressed himself in his word, the Bible is the measure of all things. So when I sit down every day and I read my Bible, what I'm really looking at is to discover how God views my thoughts, my actions, my words in the present moment and going into the future moments where they say, no, you don't need to do that. What you need to do is look at yourself so that essentially it becomes a view of life that it's all about what I think, what I feel, what I desire. Above and beyond what God, they would say, may or may not have said. 
We don't know if he actually said it. We, we think that what we're reading is accurate, but how can we know because we weren't there? Well, it really find, we find that what it did is it replaced I believe with I think. And the mind of man becomes self-deified to the point where we now become the judges of God and of his word. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're not familiar with the Bible, this, this may not even seem like a conversation that needs to take place because you pretty much live your life that way. You get up every day and you think about, okay, what do I want today, to do today, what I want to accomplish, what will satisfy my desires, my design, my pleasures. It's really all about you. You are the only real God in your life. And, he, and you would say with some other people that if there is a God, well, you know, Protagoras went on to say, if there's gods, how can we even know? Because they don't show themselves to us. They don't speak to us. And we at the Christian side of the fence are saying, no, he does speak to us. He speaks to us through nature. He speaks to us through his word. He's spoken to us by his son so that we have a God who is a communicator and he communicates with everyone and anyone who actually wants to hear what he has to say. The problem is many times we don't want to hear what God has to say. I'll never forget that, that marvelous moment. It wasn't marvelous at the time. I remember I'd, I'd really, I was in, in the university, I drifted away from the faith and I was really struggling, had no fellowship, just had begun to read the Bible and didn't really grasp a whole lot of what it meant to be a Christian. I remember I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning, couldn't sleep, and I walked down a, <clears throat> it's about a half a mile to Berkeley High School uh, football field, and I walked down there, and I walked out in the middle of the field, and I just started having a conversation with God right there, just me and God in the middle of an empty football field at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I, I really began to put him in his place. I began to explain to him how, how wrong all this is and, and on and on. I just, I, and I even yelled at him. You know, I mean, screamed. I literally raised my voice and was yelling, if you're God, show me that you're God. You know, just really, I know you're lucky you're not married to me. Anyway, so, and I remember I did that until I was exhausted. And I just, I remember I head down, shoulder slunk. I made my way back to my apartment and as I was walking along, mumbling to myself, if there's a God, how come he doesn't speak to me? And suddenly, I heard a voice. And the vo <laughs> This is literally what I heard him say. If you don't believe in me, who are you yelling at? What's that line, Shakespeare line? Methinks she doth protest too much. There's somehow about that idea that when the people who rant the loudest and the longest about how God isn't and he's not there and you can't reach him are the people are really disproving their very argument by what they're trying to accomplish. Because they believe intuitively, it's written inside of our souls that we have a God who is a communicator. We have a God, the very first thing we see him doing, it says, in the beginning was God, and God said. God's a communicator. He spoke the world in existence, and he's never stopped speaking since, but you have to want to hear him. Well, the fascinating thing is by 1900, the school of higher criticism had really made its way, permeated right through all of the seminaries and mainline denominations in both Europe and in the United States, schools like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and others, got deeply infected by their view of things. And it really changed, it began to produce an interesting kind of Christianity. First, it produced what we call liberal Christianity. Over time, liberal Christianity more recently gave way to the emergent Christianity. And emergent Christianity has given place to progressive Christianity. And now progressive Christianity has been really taken over by woke Christianity. And all of them are basically the same. What changes is because going all the way back to liberal Christianity, they kind of began to give up the idea that men were sinners and that there were certain behaviors that were condemnable because they were sin. They began to expand the parameters of what became acceptable and allowable till now we are at a point morally and ethically, there are no, there are no rails, there is no fencing, they're just cliffs for people to walk off. And what we find is the whole generation, the next generation, is walking off that cliff in mass. 
so that within just a few years we find that the number of people who said they were, uh, had fluid gender identity was right about 1% one to 2% and almost all of them were in therapy to now we have a generation, Generation Z, that 30% of them say they're gender fluid. And I'm not sure to what degree they understand even what they're saying, but the whole point is this, doesn't, this defies any kind of physiological, biological development. This is a psychological development where they're being programmed to believe something about themselves that is palpably false, just completely false. There's always that old joke, you know, if you'll believe that, I've got a bridge I want to sell to you in San Francisco, you know, or New York. And the idea that anybody stupid enough to believe something so palpably wrong would buy anything because we told them it's true. And yet here we have a whole generation who has been conditioned not to trust their own thoughts, but instead to trust their own feelings, to go with what, if it feels good, you do it. And basically, as the prophet said, we are sowing to the wind and we're going to reap the whirlwind. You see, higher criticism rejects the idea of man as a sinner. Rather, he is a victim of someone else or something that's done this to them. And so the mission of these, and I don't call them Christian organizations, but I call them religious organizations. The mission of these religious organizations has shifted from the saving of souls to saving people from property and in, uh, pro, uh, from uh, poverty and injustice. And that's called the social gospel. And what the social gospel did was it first it supplemented the biblical gospel and over time it completely supplanted it because when you focus on doing good works for the community, the community will applaud you. And because the idea is the praise of men is more important than the praise of God. Being approved by men is more important than to be approved by God. We find that the church very quickly begins to gravitate towards this ministry of good works. And the church becomes just another social entity, another social organization that's helping people out. And the sad thing is, what does it profit a man? I forget who said this. What does it profit a man if he feeds the whole world and yet he goes to hell? I know I twist that a little bit, but it's not out of context. What does it profit me if I become the most benevolent, kind, giving, sacrificial place? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if I sell all my goods, if I allow my body to be burned, but I don't have the love of God living inside of me, what benefit is it? And somebody's saying, well, that's it. It's all about love, and which is the mantra today. But here's the point. The love that Paul is speaking about there in that 1 Corinthians 13 is the agapao love, the agape love. It's a love that only God has for us. That if I don't have this loving, intimate relationship with God, it doesn't matter what I do because I will leave it behind. Maybe they will build a statue to me. Maybe this will become the... Ken Ortiz Memorial Worship Center. <laughs> Just putting it out there, you know, because after I'm dead and gone, I'm going to be visiting that a lot, which probably means I went to hell. Anyway, but, but I mean, we, we, we buy into these things. We hear politicians and others talking about their legacy. And as if legacy is this weighted thing that you look at. And I remember being in Rome and walking to the tomb of Augustine, Octavian, Augustine, the first Roman emperor, this massive, impressive building. And I thought to myself, I wonder if he's still home. I mean, it just, I, I just stood at this and I thought to myself, he's dead and gone. And the only people who are being excited about are tourists like me. But it doesn't affect his eternity at all. So what happens with the supplanting of the scriptures, we also put an end to evangelism. Evangelism becomes perverted into fixing people, not saving people. We're not about saving souls from eternal hell and judgment But we also don't begin to call people to biblical morality either. 
And so what we begin to find is that there's a growth of the very things that God says within the church, he said, which should never be mentioned once amongst you. Whether we're talking about fornication or adultery or divorce or homosexuality or transsexuality or the whole list of things, they are no longer really considered to be serious enough to take serious. So today in many churches, the Bible has been relegated to the back bench. It's being replaced with a graceless, godless catechism of uh, racial theory and, and uh, LGBTQism and wokeism. And making it very clear why Jesus issued the warning that he did in Matthew 7, 21, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, and it's, it's not like no one saw any of this coming. Seventy years ago, uh, a, a theologian by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr said that uh, there was a new kind of preaching, he said, that was coming beginning in the 1950s. He saw it coming on the scene. He said, it is, is basically, he says, a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. You see, rather than quoting Jesus who taught us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow him, the one, the Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, when he, the one who said, wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. Progressive Christians boast, in fact, they even have a book by this title entitled, We Make the Road We Follow. I'm not following the path that Jesus has. I make my own path. And I love the, the way these guys, they're very smart because they, they say things so cleverly. But basically, they point out that the Bible is no longer the inerrant, infallible Word of God, but rather, it's a powerful narrative of learning and growth. We want something greater than infallibility. Now, I think to myself, infallibility means perfect. Perfect. It means there's no error. There's nothing missing. And yet I want something greater than infallibility. You know, my wife would, would pay anything to have a husband who was infallible instead of one who thinks he is. But the whole point is that it's such a, a nonsense statement, such a play of words. And then they add, we want something that is able to be corrected an evolving conversation. Now, what all that gobbledygook comes down to is we don't take the Bible seriously, and if we refer to it, we refer to it only within the context that we assign it, not the one it assigns to itself. I often tell people when you're reading the Bible, you need to apply the 2020 rule of Bible reading. You need to be, read the 20 verses in front of the passage and the 20 verses following it, and then you'll know exactly what that passage is talking about. But all you have to do is ignore those 20 verses on either side of a passage, and you can make that verse say just about anything you want. One of my favorite is, let him who stole, steal. Okay. And we leave off, steal no more. <laughs> or even the, the governor of California, who I, I believe is a really godly man. Well, let me put it this way. I know that one day he's going to meet God. I just don't know under what conditions. But he has this whole billboard promoting Prop 1, which was open abortion to up to and after the point of birth. He's putting his billboards around the, around the state. And you know what he has? He has a biblical passage at the bottom of the billboard. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. So apparently, a baby in the womb is no longer a neighbor, nor the object of love. So he takes a passage completely out of any kind of context that the Bible would recognize, and he uses it, and that's essentially what's become the, the, the really the way in which it works. That they are looking at an evolving God. They literally use a term about how God is evolving, and that how morality is something that is malleable. In other words, you can mold morality. It changes all the time. And what we are left with is a Jesus that neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit would ever recognize. 
An ever-evolving, non-judgmental, all-inclusive, always approving of by every changing felt need and identity choice. Not a God in the sense that we know him, but more like the love doctor. And what most annoys me about it is they call this Christianity. I mean, they can call it anything else. I think that a good title is meism. I think that would be a good theological category. That they worship the trinity of me, myself, and I. That would work for me. At least I would know where they were coming from. But clearly is not as the best known, most familiar statement by Jesus in all the Bible makes so very, very plain. You know it, John 3, 16, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And I think many of them stop right there. God loved the world. It's it's immeasurable. It's incomprehensibly broad and great and deep and rich. He loved it so much that he took the most precious and valuable thing he had and he gave it as a sacrifice for our sins. And why did he do that? Oh, that's the important part, I think, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish, but have eternal life. Well, first of all, we know in context that perish is the juxtaposed with eternal life. They're not the same thing. If you're perishing, you don't have eternal life. But the word that he uses, apollome, in the the Greek literally means to destroy, to be ruined, and literally to give over to eternal misery in hell in contrast to eternal life. And if that's not clear enough, Jesus went on in that same chapter and he said, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn anybody. People are condemned already. And we find that Paul reiterates the same concept in his letters. For example, in Ephesians 2.1, where he says to anyone who is not a born-again believer, he said, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walk. You're obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's wrath. (coughs) Excuse me. Subject to God's wrath. I think which explains why when Paul is preaching to Agrippa and Bernice and and Festus, he doesn't have a discussion with them on a plan for helping them find their best life now. From a human perspective, they already had the best life you could have in the world without Christ. I mean, they they had everything. They had everything In fact, Paul emphasized that when Christ appeared to him, he didn't define the purpose of life uh, in, in affirming their inherent innate goodness. But rather, he said, when Christ appeared to me, this is what he said to me. He says, I am sending you, Paul, to do what? To open their eyes. In other words, he's looking at these, these people and he's saying, you're blind to your real circumstance and condition. You are blind to what the future is going to bring. You're blind to the fact that God is displeased with you and that his wrath is hanging like Damocles' sword over your head, ready to drop because of your hardness of heart and unrepentance. That he has sent me to you to turn you from darkness into light, which is a metaphorical way of saying that you are living in a state of confusion with very little clarity. You don't, have, you don't have wisdom to make good decisions because you can't see what's going on. And when the psalmist says, when David says in 119, your, your word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet, he's talking about a world that had no street lights, had no flashlights. And he says, yet when I look at the darkened path that lies in front of me and I look at your word, I realize how I'm supposed to walk. I can see not only where I am, but even where I should be going. Paul's looking at him saying, you, are, you think you know what your life is about. You think you know where you are going, but you're, you're just really confused. You have no real clarity. You're just 
playing bumper pool. You're just bouncing off, carrying them off, carrying them off whatever you happen to encounter in your life's journey. And if it turns out good, you go, boy, am I lucky. And if it turns out bad, you're saying, how can I avoid this happening again in the future? That's why I always love, especially after the 2008 uh, financial collapse, um, <laughs> there was one guy on CNN who was telling everybody there's nothing to worry about. And the next day, he looked like he had a heart attack. And, but he fixed it because he very quickly came out with a new book which described how you could avoid the next collapse. And I thought to myself... <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather read the book of somebody who saw it coming, not somebody who got run over by it, and from that point on says, always use a crosswalk. I don't... But he says, I'm going to open your eyes. I'm going to take you from darkness to light, from the power, and this is interesting, exousia, the word he uses here, means dominion or rulership or domination, take you from the power of Satan to God. So he's looking at these two very powerful men, some of the most powerful men he would ever talk to in his life, and he said, you have to understand that you are in bondage to Satan. To the Galatians, Paul would explain. He says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. And that age there implies the the values, the culture, the ethics, the way of thinking, the way of living. Jesus came to rescue me from the lifestyle of those who do not know God, who are darkened. He's come to rescue me. To Timothy, he wrote, lead them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses. That, in other words, they'll begin to live in a sensible way as God designed them, and then they will escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Finally, so that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. In other words, that place is heaven as opposed to hell. Later on, he goes on to explain to Agrippa, he says, there are really three things you need to do, Agrippa. You need to repent. A transformation of the way that you look at the world. You need eyes to see, ears to hear, to understand the way of God. You need, once you come to that understanding, you have to choose to turn and go on a new path. And that's really where most people get caught up because that's where we would like to, isn't there a compromise position here someplace? Can I be a godly man without really having to be always Christian? You need to repent. You need to turn. And finally said, you need to do works that manifest the fact that you actually have repented. Now, that's not as hard as it sounds because the Bible says you can judge a tree by its fruits. And the reality is I have certain trees in my yard uh, <clears throat> that I, I, I know what they are. In fact, <laughs> I got a couple of my plants so many years ago, and I'd forgotten what they were until they eventually began to bear fruit. And I, I didn't realize I had a Chinese pear tree in my yard. I didn't realize I had a cherry tree. I mean, I kind of realized it, and there was a reason why those crows were eating everything off of them. But an apple tree, I didn't see apples on it until I bought a second apple tree, and now I got apples on my apple tree. And now I know for sure it's an apple because I wasn't quite sure because I bought some tomato starts and when I saw the tomatoes begin to grow, they looked very different from the picture on the package. <laughs> and I thought somebody switched the labels here or else I bought the wrong one. But you see, the fruit becomes the ultimate evidence of what something is. And that's all it is when he says when you have to bring fruit, meat for repentance. He's saying there are a lot of people who will go around saying, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm just not one of those kind of serious ones. And I would say there's a lot of argument we could make about how that if there's not that fruit, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you haven't been born again. Maybe you haven't been inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's why there's nothing that comes out of your life that really says clearly that you are a follower of Jesus. Because we live in a culture where there's no real immediate consequence, if any at all, to say to somebody, well, I'm a Christian. 
It's easy to say it, but I know I've been in places like India where if a native says, I am a Christian, suddenly all things are off. I mean, (laughs) employment, relationships, acceptance, they are really ostracized just by making that admission. That doesn't happen here. So you don't find a lot of people over there who are jumping up and saying, I'm a Christian, you know. Happy, 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 happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Plunk, hit you over the head, you know. It's really, really kind of negative. But here, you can just check the box. Religious preference, Christian. And nobody's going to go into the database, at least not this week, and check you out. You see, Festus' reaction to Paul's comments when he talked about the fulfillment of prophecy, he talked about the resurrection of Christ, he talked about satanic darkness, he talked about repentance. These were really bizarre concepts wrapped in a vocabulary that was incredibly unfamiliar to a guy like Festus. And that's why he cries out. He says, you are out of your mind, Paul. (laughs) Your great learning is driving you insane. So here's this hardcore, realistic Roman who only believes in what he can see, touch, taste, smell, and handle, and most of all, what he can control. And he says, you're talking to me about abstract things, abstruse things that nobody believes if they're real and mature. But yet Paul doesn't drop a bit, bit drop a beat. He's not concerned with what they think about him because it's about Jesus, not Paul. It's about their soul. It's about their eternity, which is why I love how he presses Agrippa. He doesn't let it go. He just keeps on going at him and pressing him on these issues. Because like many today, I think Agrippa falls into that trap or fell into that trap that Paul characterized would be the nature of religion in the last days where he said of them that they would have a form of godliness but deny its power. A form of godliness, but deny its power. Now, we understand the word power there is speaking about the power and authority, both the dynamic power and also the authority power. So there's raw power and then there's ruling power in the scriptures. They use different words for that. And he's talking really about the combination of those things that they may say that they are a Christian. They have a form. And this is an interesting word because the real word form here. Uh, probably is best defined as what we call a semblance. And a semblance means it has a, it's an imitation, it's a, it's a counterfeit. It looks like the real thing. Outwardly, it looks like the real thing. But if you pierce the surface, you'll find it's not real. It's not real. It doesn't really exist. It's just an empty shadow, an imitation. He said they have, they have this imitation form, this external form of Christianity. They may even know how to walk the walk and they can talk the talk. They may even have a leather-bound Bible they paid $160 for and have their name embossed in gold lettering on it, proving that they're saved. But that same Bible is just like new because they've never felt the compulsion, compulsion to really read it and study it. I do this thing with my, a couple of my grandkids on Friday. We talk, talk I'm, I'm basically being a Bible teacher to them. <laughs> Teaching kids is really one of the most challenging things in the world, especially on a Zoom call. I recommend all schools go to Zoom. It's so effective. <laughs> Holding their attention is a little difficult, right? But my, my, my 11-year-old grandson asked me this question. He says, Grandpa, have you ever read the Bible? I said, yeah. From cover to cover? Yeah. How many times? I said, hundreds. And, of course, then then the teaching moment was over because he had to run through the house telling everybody how much I had read the Bible. (laughs) But, you see, he's not unique. He fits into the profile of most Americans that most Americans will say, a vast majority of Americans, amazing to say, they believe the Bible is God's word. 
And then when you begin to ask them specific about biblical doctrine, they say, they say, well, I don't agree with that one, and I don't agree with that one. And when you get down, there's only like someplace between 5 and 6% of Americans who actually believe what the Bible teaches. <laughs> because for most people, the Bible isn't a meal. It, it's really a, a snack cart that they grab something when they feel a little bit of hunger, but, uh, but spiritually they're being starved and famished. Maybe the, the, what's interesting to me too is, I, and this just came to me this week, it's kind of like where I got stuck in this passage, was that when you combine this whole concept of these two words, form and power, or form and godliness, you end up with something very interesting, which I would call simply as idolatry. What idolatry is, you make something that looks like what you think is God, and then you begin to worship it as if it's God. I'll never forget when I first got saved. Right after I got saved, I, I was still halfway into Hinduism, halfway out, and I was in San Francisco, and there used to be, there was a Hare Krishna temple there, and so they gave a free meal on the weekend, so being a hippie, I showed up for the free meal, and uh, they served it on paper plates as we sat in front of these wooden idols, and uh, I'm sitting there waiting for the utensils, and the guy next to me says, uh, in India, they eat it with their fingers. So this was my first um, experience with it, and then he pulled out a plastic fork and went at it. But, <laughs> but as we went through the meal and we went through the service, and I saw them bowing and worshiping these you know how it used to go to the carnival and they'd have those little wooden dolls that you throw the ball at and knock them down? You know, they had the frizzy hair. And you know those things were called? We, you know, some of you who are 80 or 90 like me, you know, that's exactly what these looked like. And I couldn't get over it. And they were worshiping them. And I thought, how in the world do you take that seriously? Because what idolatry is is something that's formed to look like what you want. Idols were simply made to be physical representations of what they wanted to get from the higher powers. And that's why the psalmist said they make them to look a lot like themselves. You see, the form of godliness, he said, is going to be in the last days, is something that uses the names of Christ and Christianity. But in reality, it's going to take on a form that doesn't, isn't really has no content in it. It has no power. It has no transformational healing. It can't do miracles. It can't fill life. It can't free us from sin. It can't save us from eternal death. It's just an object that we worship. This all becomes important because, I mean, we have to really kind of determine whether or not we are true worshipers or we're just idolaters. In life, there are only two eternal choices you and I can make. I, I can choose to surrender, to submit, to worship, to serve God as he has revealed himself to us. He's revealed us in Psalm, 19, Psalm 19 says he revealed it through the universe. That's why people like Robert Jastrow came to the conclusion, when the, the leading astrophysicist in the world in his time, he came to the conclusion, he said, there has to be a designer, there has to be a God, because none of this can exist, it's too perfect. Einstein disagreed with him, and so Jastrow and Einstein sat down, had a long conversation, Jastrow showed him all of his proofs, and Einstein walked away and said, he's absolutely right, there has to be a creator. In fact, his great phrase was, in the beginning was God, everything else is a detail. So nature itself declares his majesty. You, you can't honestly look at the macro universe or the micro universe and honestly, truthfully, intellectually, consistently walk away and say, yeah, it just kind of happened. Now, I don't know why we, we accept that so readily, except it enables us to have an explanation of why we don't worship God. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And contrary to all those false arguments, well, you can't rely upon that word. One thing I would say to people is you can choose not to believe the Bible, 
but it's intellectually dishonest to say that what we're reading isn't what was written originally. <laughs> Anybody who argues that has never really taken the time to study the facts. I remember sitting, having, of all things, having breakfast with Chuck Smith many years ago, and I think it was in Medford, Oregon, of all things, and we're sitting there having this conversation about my future at that time, and uh, I was paying a lot of attention. Um, and we got up after, and, and as we're walking away, this man in the booth behind us says, you know, if you read the Bible in the original Sanskrit, you'd really understand what it has to say. <laughs> and Chuck just said, no, let's go. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I just wanted to tell him in a very uh, impactful way what an idiot he was, you know, but... It's, but you hear people throw things out like that. Sanskrit? It's crazy. It was never. There's, of course, you can say that. You don't need to have evidence if nobody challenges your statements. God has shown us his reality in nature. He's shown us his reality in his word. And he showed us his reality in his son, Jesus Christ. Who the writer of Hebrews says he is the exact representation of him, of God, the Father. That's one choice. Surrender, submit, worship, and serve God as He has revealed Himself to us. Or the other choice is we can flatter ourselves and believe that the other opinion is to worship myself. I, can, I don't have to worship God. I'm going to worship me, myself. I, but here's the tricky part about that. You, when you're worshiping yourself, you're really not worshiping yourself. Unknowingly, every day that you don't bend the knee to Jesus, you are unwittingly bending the knee to Satan. Jesus says as much in John 12. He says, Satan has blinded their eyes, deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, which means repent, so that I might heal them. It's always a question not of whether or not we've heard the gospel, it's always a question of how we respond to the gospel. Festus and Agrippa made a decision as Paul closed his comments. They stood up and they walked away. Their moment, their moment in time, their opportunity was, may have been right there at that moment. I mean, I know God will, will reach out to souls over and again, but instead of listening further, they walked away, changed the subject, and probably went out and had a great lunch and very possibly are being tormented in hell even as we speak because they thought they were in control. They didn't realize that Satan was in control. He had control of their life. Their faith and their destiny it was fully, completely in his grasp. Because Jesus tells us what heaven sees in those moments. In the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, he says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, of, kingdom and does not understand it, the term there means not that there's not a comprehension, but just doesn't grasp it. You hear it, but you never grab it. And look at it. You never examine it. It's unexamined. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is a seed sown along the path, that which is trampled underfoot. So think about a moment that think about people who they hear the gospel and they just pass on, as I did so many times before I was saved. But I simply say is, <laughs> when, you have, when you view life from that lens, from that perspective, I think it's fair to ask the question, who's crazy? Who's the crazy one here? When the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape, that is ignore, how can we neglect so great a salvation? Well, the truth of the matter is, that that's exactly what most people are doing. They're neglecting this great salvation that has been given to us. That they don't realize that we aren't just creatures of time. 
we are also creatures of eternity. That every one of us is an immortal. Not just those in Marvel Comics. We're all immortals. We, we have this spirit that's called the soul of man that lives in us. It was created by God, given to us by God, and it is spiritual, therefore it's not material. Your body may die, but it lives forever. That's why eternal life and eternal death are eternal, because they're not material. They're not subject to decay. That's why my father at 81, as he's dying of cancer, says to me, in my mind, I'm a young man, but my body will not do anything I tell it to do. Because the soul doesn't grow old. It doesn't become decrepit. It is eternal. And the question is, is it encapsulated in the, in the born-again spirit of God? Has the Holy Spirit come and encapsulated your soul so that when you die, it will take it to God from whence it first came? Or will it be cast out like just so much refuge into the eternal darkness, into the abyss of sin and death. Either one is eternal. You're going to be eternally in heaven or you're going to be eternally in hell. You're not going to be in limbo. There's no middle ground. There's no transitional place. I mean, I'm sorry. I have people sometimes tell me, you know, I just feel my mom or my dad or some past loved one. I, I feel them around me sometimes. Uh, you may not be vi being visited by relatives. You may be visiting by demons that are pretending to be your relatives because the Bible doesn't paint a picture of in-between land. It's heaven or it's hell. And so Paul never lost sight of that fact as he's talking to his men who could have executed him at a whim if they didn't like what he was saying. They just could have done it. And yet Paul doesn't give any thought to that. Because he says, if I die, I know what happens to me. But if they die, I also know what will happen to them. And I think that point of view is the point of view that the church has lost. Because it's taken his eyes off the very clear black and white separation that the Bible makes about you, me, heaven and hell the devil and God. It's very black and white. It's very clear. It's very precise. And because we have lost sight of that precision of thinking, we find ourselves getting confused by the culture. We begin to think that our hope is in the next election cycle. Instead, our hope is in the coming of Christ.